Welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Gareth. Hello. And with me, as always, is Alan. Hello. Hello, Alan. And today we're talking about one of the early uh, sitcoms, one of the first generation of British sitcoms, The Rag Trade from the early 1960s. So, Alan, this is obviously, you know, we, we often joke about how oh, I'm an old man, but this is before even my time. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the, the time of when this came out and you know, how original was it? Well, yeah, so The Rag Trade uh, first started in 1961. Had its original incarnation uh, ran for three series uh, from 61 to 63. So that's really early in terms of television sitcom. Mm. It's, it's pre-Steptoe. It's about the same time as Hancock was going out, yeah. Which are these really kind of classic early BBC things? Well, when we talked about when we did the Steptoe episode, we talked about Hancock and and kind of we were had a bit of debate as to whether it classes as sitcom because the characters mm. change a little bit. And yeah. we also um, Steptoe and Son, of course, was one of these comedy playhouses that when it started, it was just a one-off TV play, and obviously mm-hmm. they had those sorts of things. But were there any other series, sitcom series, that were episodic like this? There were things going on at the time, like the army game, for example. But it mm. was it, this was the early days, and uh, it was derived from radio. There was yeah. sitcom on radio uh, already, but again, not quite the same. And and it was these early years where the language of sitcom was being written. I uh, we've talked about Steptoe and some before. That that was the real that was the show that really laid down kind of what sitcom was going to be. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's changed over the years. But the rag trade, I think, has probably more in common with the regular sitcoms nowadays, or certainly a classic sitcoms of, say, 70s to the 90s, because it is much more of an ensemble cast, a lot of characters there to play with, and it's knockabout fun, really. It's not yeah. trying to do what Steptoe does, which is inject a bit of drama into things. It doesn't really do that. Well, if I can, I don't want to tip my hand too much, but I, I agree with you. I, I mean, well, I'm going to tip my hand completely. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> I'd never seen it before. I'd sort of heard of it, but nothing more than that. I didn't know anything about it before we started uh, watching episodes. This is 60 years old, Mm. and it just seemed quite fresh. You know, obviously the the scenario is we're in a a sewing machinist's factory, and Mm. the setup is we've got all these... Uh, women or all all these girls as they are called uh, within the lingo of the time uh, who are who are the workforce we've got the owner peter jones and we've got reg varney playing the sort of shop floor supervisor and it's a kind of us against the boss type of uh, setup so it was you know it, it's kind of a little bit of its time in the sense that there's a union and, and there's a lot of comedy that derives from that but aside from that it felt like it could have been made today in, in the sense that it was you know like you say an ensemble cast relatively timeless humour and jokes. It was just Mm. a group of people being funny together. Well, what I found interesting, really, is is sort of thinking of early sitcom, where did this come from and all that sort of thing, because this doesn't derive from a radio show or anything like that. Uh, This is an original concept. And although I have heard reference uh, to it being not exactly inspired by, but certainly influenced by a film called I'm All Right, Jack, Mm. um, which you may have heard of as a classic comedy of the, the late 50s, I think, maybe early 60s. And that's about trade unions. But that that seems to be the the starting point here. We've got a trade unions. That's a big thing right mm. now. So we've got that and the boss has to go against them. The fact that they made them all women, it's, it's unexpected, I guess. <laughs> you, it wouldn't be the obvious choice. Perhaps it's unnecessary insofar as if they wanted to make a comedy about, you know, the, the bosses versus the unions, 
then they could have mm. all been blokes. The, the, that, yeah. That's not the fact that they're women is not necessary to tick that box. If you see yes. what I mean. Yes, yes, yes. It's not. It's not fundamental to the story. Yes. Although I wonder if there was some reasoning behind that. Like, oh, if we make a, a show about men being in a trade union and bullying the boss is that less funny than if it's women or is that less sympathetic somehow mm. i don't know but the fact that yeah not only has most of the principal characters women they are strong women who yeah. domineer the men in, yeah, the, in the show absolutely. even though they are not in the position of power in in the sense of the job or how much they're getting paid and that sort of thing yeah. They are in charge of the situation. The basic dynamic is that, you know, Mr. Fenner, who owns the factory, will, you know, it's every episode seems to start with him getting an order. So he's on the phone and someone wants to buy some stuff. Yes, yes, yes. My girls will be able to do that. No problem. Then he goes out. To the best, the, the best workforce you could ever, you could yeah, ever find. Yeah. <laughs> then he goes Got out to, to tell the girls what he wants them to do. And they start negotiating a rate and they bully him and they take all the profit out of it for him. And, uh, and, and then, you know, hilarity ensues, things go wrong. And that's, that's where the comedy springs from. And, and, and you're, and you're not, you say this seems to happen every episode. It happens every episode. It's very formulaic, <laughs> this show. And watching them all uh, in one kind of big go, which is obviously what I did, yeah. uh, it does get pretty repetitive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but this, I, I would frame this show as fun rather than funny. The gags are pretty obvious uh, mm. and down straight down the line, but it's fun and it's just entertaining. There's quite a lot of slapstick in the in the early yeah. series, and I think it is a show that is raised above the writing by performance mm -hmm. i think this is v very much an example of getting casting right not necessarily yeah. in every single case but uh, as we'll come on to the characters well I've we'll talk about to, the actors as we on. usually do we'll go we'll go through the actors as we go along but i agree with you i think the cast are really good just for the benefit of our listeners we watched obviously you watched all of them as you do uh, mm -hmm. We watched. A, I watched a few episodes. The one that we're going to focus on is from the first series in it's 1961, right? That's right. And it's episode four, which is called French Fashions. And ju just to just to jump in there, if you buy this on the DVD, the first series episodes are just apparently in a completely random, arbitrary order. So oh, when we say series one, episode four, that is based on the broadcast dates. Oh, well, now that's interesting, Alan, because I was going to go on to ask you about how easy it is to get a hold of these episodes, because I think I read that some that some of these episodes have, have gone forever. That's correct, yes, as we see so often with these early shows, uh, the BBC's um, slightly bizarre policy of deleting their back catalogue of work. So this first uh, incarnation of the show, which is the BBC version, has all the existing episodes um, that they're aware of at the moment, eight episodes from the 10 of the first series, mm. which are some are of worse quality than others, because depending on where they found them, you know. Yeah. And then series two has 11 of 13 episodes, I believe it is. And then series three, they have no episodes surviving, although I have oh. read somewhere that one was found a few years ago somewhere. So possibly that'll be available in the future. Uh, and I'll, I'll come on to that a, a little bit later because series three did have some changes and obviously I can't really comment on them too much. Mm. And then just to set up, we'll talk about this a bit later, but there was a, a, a reboot of the show, really, a, a second incarnation of it in the 70s, mm -hmm. uh, made by LWT for ITV. And uh, we'll talk about that as well later on as a kind of legacy element. But I am probably going to be comparing one to the other just okay. because it makes an easy comparison. So I might mention sure. that at some point. So this episode then, 
Yeah. French fashions. We start off, as I just said, in the same way that we do every week, with an order coming in for Mr. Fenner. And this time it's uh, for some French workmanship. So it's an American guy who wants to uh, get some really, some, some specific garments that can only be produced by French work pe- work, workmanship. <laughs> and, uh, and so the basic scenario, the setup for this episode is that the girls have got to pretend to be French. Yes. That's where our humour is derived. Although actually that only kicks in about halfway through after they've failed the first sort of deal attempt. True. And that is something I noticed about these earlier episodes is that they do pack a lot of stuff in. Mm. It, because, mm. yeah, uh, that could be an opening. Oh, God, we got to pretend to be French. Go. Like, that could be the starting point. But that's that's the second half, really. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get into the plot of this, why don't we let me start talking about um, some of the cast and characters. So yeah. we said Mr. Fenner, he's the, he's the guy who owns... Uh, Fenner Fashions. Mm-hmm. So he's played by Peter Jones. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Peter Jones? Well, just to start with the character, mm. if we if we dare we start on a negative here, I think <laughs> Peter Jones is the weak link of this cast. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I think he's a weak character in the sense that they sort of walk all over him. But yeah, I, yeah. I, but I think that that's all right. That's deliberate. No, no, that's okay. But what I mean, for, I mean, really, from an acting point of view, I think what Peter Jones brings to this is very one-dimensional, and he does everything at the same level. Mm. And I don't think it's for want of trying. I think he's the writing is there, and he's trying to do things, and it's just not. It doesn't sell, particularly when he's surrounded by like what I what I was saying is a really strong cast. I mean, look at these housecoats. Look at that lot. I don't know what's happened to you and those girls, Reg. Well, people take it easy round about Christmas time. That's fair enough, but my girls start taking it easy for Christmas time round about August bank holiday. And they're still celebrating New Year's Eve at Whitson. That leaves two weeks in July when they should be working at full pressure. And that's when they choose to have their summer holidays. So, you know, I don't want to start on the negative, but um, (laughs) that feels like the weak link for me anyway. Um, Okay. Well, Peter Jones, to me, uh, you know, before we started watching this, Peter Jones is is the voice of the book in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm a nerd, so, you know, that's that's where I would know his name from. But I didn't really know him other than that. So what else, what else, what had he done before this? Well, he was fairly standard, just sort of rep theatre and done... He, he worked in radio in the 50s mm. and done quite a lot of comedy on there. And he got he seemed to get a good reputation for just general off-the-cuff wit and being a, a personality. You know, he could go on the panel rack on and, and do that. Yeah, he did a show. He did a kind of semi-improv comedy thing with Peter Ustinov. Well, when I say the word raconteur, the image that comes into my head is Peter Ustinov. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, he was just a sort of jobbing actor slash comedy personality. And I don't know if he had a particularly sterling reputation, but this the rag trade was his best known TV role. Like this one yeah. kind of made him a much more household name. And let's, let's, just to qualify, the rag trade was a big hit at the time a really big hit and it made these guys all household names yeah. which which they were not before you know these guys were not established stars previously yeah yeah i think he's probably best remembered now as the book out of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy just because that is such a sort of cult fan following that is well yeah it's probably best time. remembered by uh people nerds like you and me and probably <laughs> yeah. our listeners sorry <laughs> <laughs> i'll talk a bit a bit about what he kind of did later, we'll come back to that later. But yeah, that was that's kind of the setup for Peter Jones, and 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 it's going to be very similar for all of these guys. They were working actors who became household names off the back of this show. Mm. Yeah, some big names in this. What about the character then? What about Mr. Fenner? 
Yeah, he's a weak character in the sense that you've mentioned there, that he does get walked all over. And that's ultimately frustrating, I think, uh, when you watch 20 episodes in a row. But it is important, obviously, it's a crucial aspect to how Paddy, the shop steward, is able Mm. to uh, domineer him. And And then there's just these very classic comedy tropes where he's... Uh, you know, the wife's always shouting at him on the phone. The yeah. mother-in-law turns up and berates him. The mother-in-law turns up while, you know, Carol is getting changed in his office and she sees <laughs> a, a semi-naked woman in there and obviously draws her own conclusions. It's hilarious. But <laughs> that, that, but that is farce, really. And let's be clear, this is a farce. This is slapstick yeah. and, and farce. Fenner kind of has to be like that. What What is interesting in the later series, the 70s series, they do play around with him a little bit more. And I see something a little bit more from him that it would have been nice to have got earlier, which is like he'll fight back a little bit sometimes and he'll get angry and shout a little yeah. bit. Well, I think that might be... See, one of the things that we'll probably talk about later is how this plays on this idea of industrial relations, the bosses versus the workers. Mm-hmm. And... Well, frankly, between 1961 and 1975, that relationship had changed. Yeah. There was a different dynamic there, and I guess the comedy came from a different place as well. Yeah, but that that's also what I was saying regarding the fact that we have the female characters here in charge. Mm. Does that matter? Is that important? If you have a, a very vociferous, angry manager coming and shouting at them all the time, does that create a different dynamic? not as fun or if you have male workers who are striking or taking action does that is that less sympathetic somehow is that or perhaps with if because it's women you you feel like they are you feel better that they're standing up and fighting against the oppression whereas whereas the male workers it's just looks like bullying which is a fine line actually in the show in general i think the way that Paddy behaves towards uh, Fenner is a very fine line that goes too far sometimes. Yeah, well, that's the inter- it's a really interesting relationship, isn't it? But, you know, again, they, they're the two that personify this, this, this class struggle. Mm. And, you know, that was a class struggle that was probably playing out to some extent in everyone's life, in, in the lives of the people watching. Mm. And so, yeah, a, a fine line has to be walked and there has to be a balance struck and both sides have to claim the occasional victory. Yes, which they do, yes. As much as it is a very formulaic show, you will occasionally get uh, Fenner getting the upper hand. But it's all very pleasant, ultimately, I think. Yeah. And and, and it is, obviously, is the class struggle, isn't it? I mean, it's your classic British ingredients for comedy. Yeah. Well, for anything, really. Uh, shall we talk about Paddy, then? Uh, yeah, so we, we've mentioned Paddy a few times. Paddy is the shop steward, played yeah. by Miriam Carlin. And she's the she's the antagonist to Fenner, mm-hmm. and I I think well I think this is a great character. Miriam Carlin, I will be honest with you, I'd not really heard of her before this. Mm-hmm. I think she's brilliant. I think she's great. I think she does a really good job of this character. Now I want to establish a really high bonus rate for this dress. Now what's difficult about it? No, nothing really. Built up, darling. Just second that. Carry built up. Right. Now how long would it take a really conscientious worker to make this dress? Six hours. Yeah, how long would it take us? Couple of days. Right, a couple of days. Mr. Fenner, my brothers have decided the dress takes two days to make. Yeah, she's one of those actors who is probably a bit better known for stage work and and all that sort of thing. And definitely this was her best known thing. Uh, Not just at the time, but I think, you know, if you're looking back on her career, 
this is the this is kind of the headline role that she'll be remembered for. She is, yeah. of course, in A Clockwork Orange, quite famously, <laughs> if, uh, you know, a famous bit in that where she gets uh, assaulted with a phallus statue. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's something to be remembered for. I actually remember her in, because uh, obviously I, you know, I looked her up after watching this. Yeah. And she was in a 90s sitcom called So Haunt Me, yes. which um, which also starred George Costigan and Tessa Pete Jones. And I, I remember that. I, I couldn't have told you it was Miriam Carlin playing the, yeah. the, the, the old Jewish lady who haunted the family home. <laughs> Young people, they don't scare like they used to. It's all this video at my age, I should compete with Hollywood. <laughs> I'm going to scream, then you'll disappear. You're, you're just a figment of my imagination. <laughs> Such long words she uses. I, I remember the sitcom. I, I won't say that I loved it, but I do remember watching it. <laughs> You say it's a hell of a setup. I mean, you just did it in one sentence. <laughs> an old Jewish woman High haunts a family home. Yeah, it's a it's an odd show. I did watch a little bit of it actually, just because um, I wasn't particularly familiar with it. Uh, and it's it's that's basically the only other sitcom she's done as a proper kind of regular role. She was obviously a bit older by then. It, I don't know how they managed to get three series out of it. It didn't feel like a concept that. <laughs> I'm, I'm that fairly much. convinced I didn't watch every episode. I might have watched one or two. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, Miriam. Carl Carlin um, herself as she's actually a little bit more middle class than you might think based on this role. Um, her father was a barrister, but then her father was also, uh, you know, a, a champion of uh, trade union uh, law and stuff right. like this. So, yeah. and she herself uh, was made an OBE uh, for her union work with Equity. She was oh, like she did a lot of work with Equity. So, you know, there's obviously parallels there. But she's yeah. she wasn't particularly working class. She went to RADA and uh, she she performed with ENSA during the war, which is something we see quite a lot uh, as we've been looking back at these older shows, like Leonard Pierce in Only Fools and Horses, for example. He he was part of ENSA yeah, we, during, we, the, during the yeah, war. Yeah, ENSA was the it was it was the sort of entertainment division of the army during the Second World War. So they they would go around and entertain the troops. Mm. Um, so they were they were actually uh, conscripted. You know, they were serving military officers. But, yeah. you know, their their assignment during the war was to go and uh, sing songs and do dances and put on plays for the bored troops, yeah. which, uh, which I suppose, you know, beats being in a trench. It does. And, and, you know, actually a really important part of morale and keeping everyone going and everything. It, you know, it's a worthwhile thing. It really is. The only the only problem is that we, because we're sitcom historians, I just think of It Ain't Our Hot Mum and yes. I can't sort of get past that and I just imagine <laughs> Melvin Hayes dressed up singing in, in drag and uh, I, I, I assume that's what Leonard Pierce was doing. <laughs> There is a, there's definitely a difference. Uh, in It Ain't a Half Hot Mum, there are concert parties. Not quite the same thing. I'm not mm. sure if there's any military experts out there might know the difference, but it's definitely not quite the same thing. Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's Miriam Carlin, and she is a, a vital ingredient here. Yeah. But uh, I think, for my money, what really lifts the show above falls on the other principal cast members. So I would say Sheila Hancock... Esma Cannon and Reg Varney. And I'd okay. say about 80% of that is Esma Cannon for me. I for some, There's something about her. Well, I'm really surprised, yeah, because really... we're going to disagree on this, because uh, we'll talk a bit more about the character, but the Esma Cannon's character really wound me up. I did not enjoy her at all. T- tell, tell us a bit about Esma Cannon and the character she plays. She's one of the workers. Yeah, so one of the workers, Esma Cannon plays Lil, who uh, is the oldest worker there by quite a considerable amount. Is They are all young women. But they're unmarried, Alan. That, that's the point. 
you know, you, when you got married, you, you stopped working. You had your kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although one of them, but but yeah, basically in the in the very first episode, you know, one of the girls, her husband, turns up with a baby, That's right. saying, "I'm not looking after this. You can take care of it." Yeah. So <laughs> mostly unmarried. Yeah. But so Lily is a spinster. Uh, looks like she's probably about sixty. Uh, played by Esma Cannon, and uh, like uh, Esma Cannon's about four foot seven or something ridiculous. Uh, the physical, so, like, physicality is amazing. She's this tiny little bird of. She's like a, a a skeletal bird of a woman. Yes, and it works fantastically. Like her physical, what she brings to it, what she does, just the way she would walk into a room can really create something funny. <laughs> Oh, tell me where it hurts. Across the back. Oh. Oh, you found it. Ah. This is what we call a rheumatic pain. Now it's there, isn't it? Yes, just below the label on me vest. And and that's what I mean. I think there's just a tone that she brings that I really like. I will acknowledge that mm. she basically just has one thing that she does, and it's yeah. kind of like flapping about and yeah, going, oh! flapping, <laughs> reacting to things. Yeah, but she's she's a bit she's a bit of a caricature in a in a show that I think is grounded in reality quite well. She's a real caricature and just. That's why she jarred with me a little bit. Well, I I think it, for whatever reason, yeah, for I, I do acknowledge what you're saying there. But for whatever reason, for me, it worked, and and it just kind of it injected that little bit of uh, ridiculousness into the situation. So, what's Esma Cannon's backstory then? She must be the oldest person in the cast. Yeah, she's Australian actually, born and bred in Australia, and um, worked as a child actor. A child actor. Now, I'm not. I'm genuinely not trying to be rude here, but does that mean pre-talkies? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Silent and, movies on stage and theatre stuff as well. Uh, yeah, 1905 she was born. Wow, yeah. She played ch- child roles quite well into her adulthood just because she was so small and, and everything. And just became, a, went moved to London to kind of like, oh, there's work there. And uh, became a, a character actor, got plenty of work, but, mm. you know, just because of what she does and how she looks, she's never going to be playing leads or anything. Yeah, she uh, she's probably best known these, well, she's best known for Rag Trade. She also appeared in a few Carry On films. She's quite well remembered for those roles. Do you know what? She she seems very, I'm not really sure how I can quantify this, but she seems very music hall. <laughs> she seems like her, she would have been a good actor at a music hall in the 1890s mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, she's very old fashioned in that sense. Yeah, I can just imagine someone pull, pushing on a pram, like an oversized pram, and then she jumps out as dressed yeah, as a baby. Yeah, sings a song, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's <laughs> but that I think that's perhaps why I like it and why it works for me because this really feels like it's come from the musical and I think mm. the rag trade owes a lot to that so mm. in, in one episode for example it's the first episode Reg uh, they need to warm up the baby's milk they've got a baby mm. there and mm. so he puts the baby bottle on the steam press that's right accidentally leaves it there for too long it gets pressed down and when he goes to get it what he reveals is like a, a giant piece of cardboard milk bottle, bottle. squashed shape. Yeah, that's that was very cartoony, wasn't it? I, yeah. I saw that. I mean, I'll, I'll be truthful. It made me laugh because it yeah. was unexpected. But yeah, that was, I just said a minute ago, this is grounded in reality. That was very much. <laughs> but that I think is very telling of the time. Not not just the, because it was so early. It's kind of still early for TV, really. And what yeah. are we doing here? That's a visual joke. That's a joke that would work on stage. It's a joke. It's like we need to make sure that the guys at the back of the hall can see this prop. Yeah. And, and Reg Varney sort of holds it up, you know, presents yeah. it. 
exactly. as if to the audience, you know. And there's a lot of that going on in this when you watch these things, where if you see something from the 70s, for example, you just don't have that. The language has moved on by that point. Um, you, you don't get that in, for example, Steptoe and Son. Well, mm. That's what I'm talking about. Steptoe and Son feels much more refined and written for TV rather than written for musical. And, and one of the writers here... Uh, specifically started in musical writing for comedians writing for gags on vaudeville yeah. and stuff like that so uh, uh, ronald wolf so i i think it's got that lineage and it it displays it quite proudly yeah. uh, in these early episodes certainly and i think that's okay i think it makes it feel a little bit of its time but the level of humor still works it's just that the way it's expressed might be slightly different you just wouldn't have so for example in the 70s remake of this show they do the same bit they put the baby bottle in the press, and then when he reveals it, it's a baby bottle that has been squashed as if it's been stamped on, you know? It just looks like a proper squashed baby bottle. But that's not as funny. So the joke they get out of it is that when it's pressed down, the milk spurts out all over Fenner's jacket. So they've had to change the gag just because a, a giant cardboard milk bottle isn't fun, <laughs> won't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let, let's go back into our episode a little bit, because uh, what what we find is that Fenner needs to uh, has some uh, new crease proofing uh, solution that he wants Permo to put crease. on his Yes, which again is almost in a uh, an Acme l- yeah. uh, bottle with crease proofer in it, <laughs> and he get, he hands it over to Reg with the "Be careful, follow the instructions." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, so like, you know, sort of definitely don't do anything. Definitely wrong. don't leave the trousers in too long, otherwise <laughs> all sorts of hilarity could ensue. But then we go yes. back out onto the onto the shop floor because Reg is going to go and uh, apply this permo crease mm-hmm. to the trousers. But as we go back to the shop floor, Paddy is doing Carol's hair because they want to save a bit of money. Carol's going to be modelling these trousers for the American client. And so Fen has given her some money to go and get her hair done, but they want to trouser that money. And, uh, and so Paddy's doing her hair for her with a bottle of perm lotion, which looks suspiciously like the permo crease. What <laughs> could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and this is again a, a, something they do something you'll see a lot if you watch these things over and again are repeated gags uh, yeah. they, they are not afraid to do that so there's at least three episodes where carol is they're doing her hair and it, something goes wrong <laughs> really there's another another repeated gag is a character different one each time but a, a character who has started to roll their own fags because you know they're trying to save money mm. and like oh no i'm terrible at rolling fags oh well i'll light it anyway and it, then it just sets fire in like a big flame in their face <laughs> It's interesting, um, Carol is very much presented as the, the, the glamorous face of Fenner Fashions, and she's in this episode she's modelling these trousers for the American to try and impress him. And, you know, there's various references to her being glamorous. And mm-hmm. she played by Sheila Hancock, who's a very beautiful young woman. I looked it up, she's 28 at the time of this of this being recorded. But the thing about her is, and I don't know if it's because it's because of the clothes, the hairstyles, she just looks like someone's nana. <laughs> she looks she looks like she looks like pictures of my granny from the nineteen sixties, which I suppose is about right. But it's it's funny that in 1961, she was considered glamorous and beautiful, but with our filter 60 years later, she just looks like a sort of frumpy middle-aged lady. Well, I, I, I don't know, because I think there is an element here, and I mean no ill will to Sheila Hancock, but I think there is an element of irony here that she's the model, because the, the whole point is she's a cut-price model. Fenner isn't going to pay a model. Right. He's got a, a tall, thin girl. That's good enough. The fact that she's got a grandma's face is, doesn't matter. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, I, don't know. I, think, I think she's presented several times as glamorous, and uh, Fenner says, "Well, I've, I've I've seen that she's a very beautiful young woman." And yeah, so I think, I, well, actually, as I say, she is a beautiful woman. I'm not I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on her. It's just the point I'm making is about the style of the day, which was you know she had this modern haircut in 1961, mm. which is before the Beatles. Yeah. Whereas to, to our modern eyes, it looks like a very old-fashioned haircut. But I think it's actually an important part of the character that she's not glamorous. Like, she's not stylish. She's a working-class woman who's doing the best. It's like a poor man's version of glamour, you yeah. know? It's like, it's all this kind of cut-price versions of things. She hasn't sure. got the latest clothes. She hasn't got the latest hairstyle. She's got what her mum can do or what her friend can do on yeah, her hair and all that. Yeah. And I think that's definitely deliberate and, you know, very telling of that time and, and those people uh, that work at your working classes. Well, we've, we've mentioned Sheila Hancock now. So why don't we why don't we go off on a Sheila Hancock tangent? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, like, Sheila Hancock to me, like, has always seemed like one of the elder stateswomen of acting, you know, like mm. a Maggie Smith or that sort of person. And, and definitely better known for theatre in my head. Yeah, I'd say she's borderline national treasure status. Well, she just became a dame in this 2021 New Year's Honours. So, yeah, that's how much more national treasure do you want? <laughs> exactly. Endorsed by her match. But, yeah, what could you actually say, oh, Sheila Hancock is in this? That's a really good question because I, I, I basically went through the same thought process and I sort of went on IMDb and looked. And there were several things where I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes, I remember her being in that. Oh, yeah. Mm. But but not actually nothing that, oh, she is famous for X. You know, yeah. she's just she's just got a long career of many many credits. Yeah, and I and I think like again, like a Maggie Smith or, or a Judy Dench, she's someone who I associate with being an older woman and kind of playing those characters. But you know, obviously, all these people had careers when they were young as well. And funnily enough, with Sheila Hancock, yeah, I think she is better better known for stage work, really. So that yeah. doesn't quite last as long in the memory. And obviously, I haven't seen her do anything on stage. But back in the day, back in the 60s, she was a sitcom star. No doubt about that. She was she did several things. And, and I think one of the great things about this show and her performance is she has such a great comedic instinct. Yeah. And yeah, she's she's doing loads of physical stuff, but also just the way she delivers lines, it feels so much more natural and kind of... I feel It feels like to me uh, that she's dropping in extra words here and there. Like, not, not going off script, but just kind of continuing a line. You know, mm. where you say, oh, I told you that was going to happen. See, I told you. Like, you know, it's like just adding something on just to fill the gaps, fill the spaces. And yeah. where, yeah. for example, Peter... To Jones, I feel like he's saying the lines he's been given and he's not going to deviate from that, except when he gets them wrong. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was looking through through the IMDb list and uh, seeing what I recognised, there was one thing which I didn't recognise from basically the next thing she did afterwards, which was called The Bedsit Girl, which looked mm. like she was the main star of that sitcom with Derek Nimmo. Did you, mm. did you learn anything about that? Yeah, well, it, it's lost to time, that one, so um, you can't see it. But that was written by uh, Ronald Chesney and Ronald Wolfe, who wrote The Rag Trade. It was written for her. Um, and yeah it was a follow-up to this it was like oh well she's a big star now what can we do she was the breakout star well i think they all were really they they all went on well not they didn't all go on to do other things esma cannon pretty much retired after she did this sheila hancock has a really interesting story actually she and she has written at least one autobiography and and she does lots of interviews and things it's definitely an, an interesting story to look at 
But she had quite a tumultuous childhood, you know, moved around a lot. Um, Her parents ran pubs and stuff, so she moved from one pub to another and she got evacuated during the war as a child. So like that, obviously, very, you know, a tumultuous thing to do to happen. But got into acting, ended up at RADA and all that. Um, Got a grammar school education, even though she was a bit more working class, you know, got a scholarship to RADA and all this. And so I think she's always kind of felt like she hasn't quite fitted in. Um, and, And perhaps that informs the way she performs somehow. Uh, but yeah, Rag Trade was a big break, you know, no doubt about that. Made her a household name. And then she did loads of sitcoms. So she did The Bedsit Girl, which was, like I say, written for her by Chesney and Wolf. And then in the, the very The thing late... that I liked about that was that it was her and Derek Nimmo as a, as a mm. young couple. I just can't imagine Derek Nimmo young. <laughs> <laughs> and then she did uh, a sitcom called Mr. Digby Darling uh, in the late 60s with Peter Jones. So that's Peter Jones is the boss of this company. She's his secretary, but she acts like his wife, like she she does his cleaning and, and ironing and cooking and stuff. And she treats him like, a, you know, a, a precious husband. So he has to come to work to get away from, uh, you know, his wife at home. It, it, I watched a couple episodes of that. It was an interesting thing. It was a big show at the time. Um, it was a very big success. And yeah. with these, these guys who were still hot from, you know, the likes of the rag trade. Nasty business is bigamist in Oldham. He married three women and they all ended up as left luggage. Oh, how horrible. I mean, he made his point by getting rid of the first one, but all three. Old habits die hard, I suppose. It's, it's, it's interesting just to see Sheila Hancock play something completely different to the rag trade, because she's quite right. put on a put bit more airs and graces. It, it feels a lot more dated than, than uh, rag trade, even though it was made later. And then another, another show she did called Now Take My Wife. Um, which wasn't a success as well in the early 70s. And then, you know, she did a bit more, moved more into theatre. And she's done every theatre role you can imagine, really. Musicals, you know, lead parts, supporting parts as an older woman these days. Nominated for six Olivier Awards, I think it was. Um, And that sort of thing. You know, just been a top-end working actor for 60 years. Yeah. And still works now, still still gigging. She's 88, still knocking about. But also she, she seemed to have developed, a, a, well, a, a, a Ustinov-esque raconteur status where she <laughs> will, um, even back in the 60s, she was doing panel shows on the radio, like Just a Minute and all that sort of thing. And, and able to hold her own in what was still very much a man's world even back then, uh, if yeah. not now. You can find a lot of interviews with her and just telling anecdotes and, and stories. She's just a great storyteller in that. Yeah. And so, one, like for example, one of the things she was talking about in an interview I heard was that uh, when they were doing the rag trade, her and Miriam Carlin were both working in theatre at the time. So they were rehearsing for rag trade in the day, doing their theatre shows in the evening and then recording on Sunday on their days off. And so they were just exhausted all the time. And she was saying like, yeah, we, we just took purple hearts and drank champagne. That's how we got through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's quite, she's, she's, she's very open about <laughs> like about yeah. things she's done. Her past okay like, in the 60s. Yeah, everyone took them. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. And she, she has got a, a very nice turn of anecdote about it. It's definitely worth, uh, worth looking up. But yeah, so Sheila Hancock, a real personality and a, a comedic instinct that yeah. comes through in this and uh, we see it in this episode you know she uh, she has to really take the brunt of the physical comedy here by uh, modeling trousers that are well stiff basically well who wouldn't who would have thought it reg left the perma crease on too long oh no i can't believe it <laughs> as did paddy on carol's hair so her perm yeah. is a bit crap <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so they they go to this american buyer they she's got to model the trousers the trousers are extremely stiff 
Uh, Reg Varney is in a small room with um, a, a very conspicuous empty glass vase on the side of a, of a, <laughs> of a shelf. So uh, obviously he knocks that over at one point. Uh, there's a lot of very basic setup and payoff with all this yes. stuff, but it yeah. does work. It just they just about get away with it with a kind of uh, with a good humor and, and nice performance. And you have to bear in mind that things that we look back now and we say, "Oh God, that's so obvious." That vase, you know, maybe it wasn't so obvious then. Yeah. So we have a whole scene where. They, they get these trousers onto her and she's modeling the trousers she can't bend her legs and, and it's a beautiful bit of physical comedy you know she's uh, she's and and there's there's several examples of this like this is stock in trade carol's doing the modeling oh no something's gone wrong with the clothes so they're either they've shrunk and they're far too small they've been cut off or something you know something's so happened. she she does the modeling quite regularly then yeah yeah in fact there's there's one episode where uh, linda barron off of open all hours turns up in the uh, as a as a slightly posh kind of secretary that's working for Fenner and she wants to do the modeling and that's so that's the the plot of one episode where Carol is being chucked out as a model does that girl really do the modeling yes I do because I'm tall and I'm skinny like a model yeah she's sophisticated with it yeah and I get two guineas extra time do you? Do you know, I've always been told I'd make an extremely good model. Yeah, for the Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> that's, a, that's a regular occurrence, but always something goes wrong. Like I say, it's very repetitive, very formulaic. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the writers now, since, we, since we're insulting them by saying their comedy's repetitive. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Ronald Chesney and Ronald Wolfe. They, they, we're treating them as a couple, right? They work together. Yeah, yeah, certainly they're more famous things. For me, Chesney and Wolfe are on the buses. That's kind yes. of what I think of immediately, and that certainly was their biggest hit. But the rag trade was their big hit before that, as in the one that made their names on TV, yeah. uh, and they they did on the buses off the back of that. I when I actually looked these guys up, I didn't really know that much about them to be honest with you. But Ronald Chesney is very interesting. He was actually he's of French descent. His his real name is René Lucien Cadier. Um, he went to the French Lycée in London, where we talked about where Francis de la Tour went to. Oh, yes, I believe we did. it's the same school. And then his early career was as a professional harmonica player. Getaway. <laughs> I don't know how much call there was for harmonica players, but he was like the, the like if you wanted a harmonica player in the forties and fifties, you, you go straight to Ronald Chesney. I mean that that was the name on everyone's lips. <laughs> and uh, one of the jobs he got as a harmonica player was doing musical interludes for the radio show Educating Archie. Educating Archie was radio ventriloquy, right? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it was where Tony Hancock um, met. Goldman Simpson, because they were writing for it, and he he had a bit part on that. So Ronald Wolf, uh, the other Ronald here, he was already writing on Educating Archie. So when Ronald Chesney started playing harmonica for the show, they just hooked up and went, shall we write together? And Ronald Chesney put his harmonica down and went, yeah, all right, I can write this with you. And as far as I can tell, that's it. That's the, that's the history of how he God, became a writer. Harmonica is up there from in my head with bagpipes and accordion. And I can see there's a lot of skill involved, but honestly, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but yeah, so Ronald Wolfe uh, was just a bit more of a standard writer journey. He, um, he was writing for music hall comedians, uh, specifically in the kind of the Jewish uh, comedy work. He was uh, of Jewish stock himself. He's uh, apparently a cousin of Warren Mitchell. Uh, apparently okay. that's I, according to Wikipedia. I, I can, <laughs> I'm sure it's true. Citation needed. And so they wrote for Educating Archie together quite a lot. Uh, they wrote the last few series of that with Marty Feldman and um, lots of other radio stuff. But the Rag Trade was their their big sort of get on the TV. 
Yeah, so they went on to write lots of things. So Meet the Wife with Thora Heard, uh, The Bedsit Girl, they wrote for Sheila Hancock. They did yeah. uh, On the Buses, of course. Don't Drink the Water, which was a spin-off from On the that Buses. That was On the Buses on Holiday, right? Uh, no, no, that's uh, Blakey and his sister go and live in Spain. Yeah, On the Buses on Holiday. What do you want from me? <laughs> and then they did uh, Romany Jones, they did a, uh, and then Yus, My Dear. Hang on, Romany Jones sounds a bit problematic. What? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> I don't even think about it. Uh, and then they, they, they were tailing off by the 70s. They, they did this revival of the rag trade, which didn't particularly do anything special. Um, they did a sitcom in 1980 called Watch This Space with Peter Blake, um, who, as you know, is my, my talisman now. He's my, <laughs> my spirit uh, sitcom animal. And uh, one of the very last series they did was Take a Letter, Mr. Jones with John Inman. Uh-huh. A hilarious gender reversal of a male secretary. Uh, but that, it was the 80s by then. And I think their style had just kind of fall out of favour. And I mean, the young ones was, what, two years after that? <laughs> I mean, come on. And, you know, bear in mind, they were in their 60s by that point as well. Um, but they, they they both lived uh, very long lives. Um, Ronald Chesney died in 2018. He was well into wow. his 90s by that point. Well, that's all the rag trade we have for you this week, but come back next time where we will look at the other actors and also look in a little bit more detail at the 1976 remake by LWT. In the meantime, do go and check out our other content, and of course you can follow us on the social medias, at BritcomPod, or look us up on YouTube, British Sitcom History, where we have content over and above the podcast itself, other things on there too. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you will be back next week.